Hello again, ModPod listeners. Thanks for joining us for another episode. This episode will be a bit shorter than our usual, but we'll have a bonus episode on the landscape of glaucoma treatment for you, so be sure to check back soon. November may be Diabetes Awareness Month, but the disease is an important topic year-round. For you, our listeners, it's important to stay current with all things pertaining specifically to diabetic eye disease. The first two articles in this episode come from Mod's June cover focus on diabetic eye disease. First up is Cecilia Ketting from Virginia Eye Consultants in Norfolk with a rundown of the four stages of diabetic retinopathy. Patients with either type 1 or type 2 diabetes are at risk of developing neurovascular complications that can lead to diabetic retinopathy and or diabetic macular edema. Researchers have found that nonproliferative diabetic retinopathy was present in 25% of patients five years after they were diagnosed with diabetes, 60% at 10 years, and 80% at 15 years. These studies also found that the incidence of proliferative diabetic retinopathy varied from 2% in those who had had diabetes for less than five years to 15.5% in those who had had diabetes for 15 or more years. As an optometrist, you treat and observe the only place in the human body where physical damage to blood vessels caused by systemic diseases can be viewed and non-invasively. This explains the importance of monitoring all patients with diabetes and working with primary care physicians or endocrinologists to help manage these patients. The American Optometric Association's practice guidelines and the American Diabetic Association Both state that patients with type 1 diabetes should have a comprehensive dilated eye examination within five years of disease onset. Patients with type 2 diabetes should receive a comprehensive dilated examination at the time of diagnosis and yearly thereafter. Women who were previously diagnosed with type 1 or type 2 diabetes should have a comprehensive dilated eye exam before becoming pregnant or within the first trimester. This article provides tips on caring for patients with diabetes, including advice calibrated to the specific stages of diabetic retinopathy. Patients with NPDR generally present with hemorrhages of varying sizes, microaneurysms, hard exudates, soft exudates, cotton wool spots, intraretinal microvascular abnormalities, and venous loping or beating. MAs are saccular outpouchings of retinal capillaries that have been weakened by a loss of intramural parasites. The weakened capillary walls can leak or rupture, causing hemorrhages. Irmas are either new vessel growth within the retina or pre-existing vessels with proliferative endothelial cells that are moving through areas of non-perfusion. Presence of irma indicates ischemia and is precursor to neovascularization. Venous looping and beating are caused by severe retinal hypoxia and indicate an increased risk for progression to neovascularization. When patients with diabetes are in your chair, it's important to gather as much information about their condition as possible. Stage 1. Mild NPDR. These patients have at least one MA, but no other findings. Findings are often subtle, so close inspection and monitoring are essential. These patients should have a dilated eye examination every 12 months. There is a 5% risk that mild NPDR will progress to BDR within one year. If one or more MAs are present in the eye of a patient not yet diagnosed with diabetes, 
he or she should be considered a diabetic suspect and should see his or her PCP for further testing. Documenting subtle findings and noting their exact locations will help you to monitor patients for disease progression. Use fundus photography, if available, for easy future comparison. Patients with mild NPDR do not need to be referred to a retina specialist, unless you are concerned about or have confirmed a diagnosis of DME. It is important to discuss findings with patients, especially those who are recently diagnosed with diabetes, to ensure that they understand that MAs indicate early end organ damage from their disease and that they are educated on its possible ramifications. Encourage them to monitor their blood sugar and diet, send a detailed report to the patient's PCP and or endocrinologist so that they are aware of the findings which will aid in their decision making or treatment. Stage two, moderate NPDR. These patients have hemorrhages or MAs in one to three retinal quadrants and or cotton wool spots, heart exudates, or venous beating. Patients with moderate NPDR should be seen every six to eight months. There is a 12 to 27% risk that they will develop proliferative diabetic retinopathy within one year. The use of fundus photography is suggested for these patients, and you may obtain macular OCT images at your discretion if you suspect DME. These patients do not need to be referred to a retina specialist unless you have confirmed DME or you believe OCT imaging is warranted but do not have access to this technology. Again, it's important to educate these patients on the findings and what they suggest about the disease process. Depending on their recent blood sugar control and last diabetes examination with their PCP or endocrinologist, it may be necessary to refer patients back to those providers sooner than scheduled so that they can consider changes in treatment. Stage 3, Severe NPDR. These patients have intraretinal hemorrhages greater than 20 in each quadrant, venous beating in two or more quadrants, or an IRMA in one or more quadrants. This is known as the 4-2-1 rule. These findings must be in the absence of neovascularization, which would indicate PDR. Patients with severe NPDR should be monitored using both macular OCT and fluorescein angiography to detect any DME or early neovascularization. Referral to a retinal specialist is recommended, and patients should be monitored every three to four months with dilated fundus examination. You may be able to work with a retina specialist by alternating appointments to monitor these patients. Patients with severe NPDR have a 52% risk of developing PDR within one year, so it is important to discuss with them the importance of blood sugar control and close observation. A call to the patient's PCP or endocrinologist to discuss retinal findings is also warranted. These patients are at a high risk of disease progression and permanent vision loss, and they are most likely experiencing neuropathy elsewhere at this point. Stage four, proliferative diabetic retinopathy. These patients had NPDR that has progressed to PDR, and they exhibit either neovascularization of the disc elsewhere or vitreous or preretinal hemorrhages. These patients require immediate referral to a retina specialist for further testing and treatment. Peripheral neovascularization is usually treated with laser panretinal photocoagulation. They also often receive anti-VEGF intravitreal injections that may be performed in conjunction with PRP. Until their disease stabilizes, these patients need to be monitored monthly by a retina specialist. 
Thereafter, they may be seen every 6 to 12 months. Communicate all findings to the patient's PCP and or endocrinologist. A phone call is warranted if the patient has a new onset PDR. As the number of U.S. patients with diabetes grows, it is important for optometrists to collaborate with PCPs, endocrinologists, and retina specialists on managing these patients' disease. This teamwork, combined with effective communication among caregivers and with patients, will enhance the care that they receive. You just heard some advice on caring for patients with diabetic retinopathy based on the stage of their disease. Next, you'll hear about a new ally in the diagnosis and management of diabetic retinopathy from Nate Lighthizer, an associate professor and assistant dean of clinical care at the Oklahoma College of Optometry at Northeastern State University. Dr. Lighthizer wrote this next article, which explains why OCT angiography shows promise for becoming a key imaging tool with resident Sergio Picciaranu. Since its introduction in 1991, OCT has become a staple tool for eye care practitioners. As resolution has improved and normative databases have been developed, OCT is now routinely used to monitor myriad retinal and optic nerve diseases including glaucoma, age-related macular degeneration, central serous retinopathy, and more. The latest advance in OCT technology is the introduction of OCT angiography, also known as OCTA which gives practitioners a non-invasive way to image the retinal and choroidal vasculature. Working on the same basic principles as standard OCT, OCTA takes multiple B-scans of an area of the retina and analyzes the light rays that are reflected. Stationary areas of the retina reflect light in a consistent manner, whereas areas that are more dynamic, such as where blood is flowing through the vasculature, have different reflectance patterns. The differences detected by comparing sequential B-scans reveal patterns of blood flow. By combining the repeated scans, an image of high flow areas throughout the retina can be constructed. Two main types of light sources are used with OCTA. Swept source, which is approximately 1,050 nanometers, and spectral domain, which is approximately 800 nanometers. Spectral domain imaging typically has a higher resolution than swept source imaging, 1.5 microns versus 8 microns, respectively, whereas swept source imaging enables deeper penetration, 2 millimeters versus 2.6 millimeters, respectively, therefore allowing better imaging of the choroidal vasculature. OCTA has the potential to replace or supplement findings from traditional imaging methods such as fluorescein angiography for looking for choroidal and intraretinal neovascular membranes or nets. OCTA is also able to detect areas of low perfusion or non-perfusion, which is indicative of past or ongoing ischemic changes. Such changes are known to play a role in the permanent visual damage in retinal arterial and venous occlusions and are believed to contribute to damage in normal tension glaucoma and early diabetic retinopathy. Diabetic retinopathy is the leading cause of visual impairment and preventable blindness in working-age adults, and the prevalence of diabetes is expected to increase. Detection of subclinical diabetic retinopathy can lead to earlier treatment of the underlying condition, which not only helps prevent irreversible vision loss and microvascular damage, but also leads to a lower overall burden of disease on both the patient and the healthcare system. Further, identification of early changes and changes indicative of rapid progression can allow practitioners to better determine which patients should be monitored more carefully or treated more aggressively. 
Diabetic retinopathy has been shown to have a long latent phase, and up to 20% of patients with newly diagnosed diabetes already have some level of retinopathy present. Studies suggest that neural damage often precedes clinical observable microvascular changes. Therefore, finding ways to better detect early diabetic retinopathy changes is crucial to providing patients with the best care possible. One clinical sign that has been correlated with diabetic retinopathy changes is enlargement of the foveolae vascular zone. It has been well documented that hypoxia and resulting retinal ischemia play an important role in the development of diabetic macular edema. An increase in the FAZ area indicates loss of fine capillaries and ultimately reduced blood flow and perfusion to the highly sensitive foveal area. Studies have shown that foveal ischemia can lead to many visual consequences, including but not limited to loss of contrast sensitivity, visual field defects, and poor response to future anti-VEGF treatments. Numerous studies have been conducted recently using OCTA to document changes such as those in the FAZ in patients with diabetes without signs of diabetic retinopathy. With OCTA, a statistically significant increase in FAZ area and a loss of both superficial and deep retinal vasculature density have been noted in patients with type 2 diabetes without previously diagnosed diabetic retinopathy. Similar findings have been shown in patients with type 1 diabetes as well as children with a positive correlation between FAZ size and duration of disease. Because OCTA to date lacks a normative database, it is difficult to quantify what amount of vascular change is clinically significant. However, for patients with undiagnosed or recently diagnosed diabetes, taking baseline vasculature and FAZ size measurements and monitoring for changes may help guide practitioners' decision-making. FA and endocyanin green angiography remain the gold standards for measuring and analyzing retinal blood flow, but both procedures have limitations. They offer only 2D views of blood flow, take considerable time to perform, carry risks such as anaphylaxis, nausea, and vomiting, and do not provide high-resolution images or quantifiable data. OCTA, on the other hand, provides a non-invasive solution to many of these issues, providing high-quality, fast, repeatable data that can be visualized in 3D. OCTA also provides measurements of vessel density and blood flow. In the context of diabetic retinopathy, OCTA often provides better imaging than FA of the capillary plexus of the deep retina, which is the typical location of ischemic changes and subclinical microaneurysms. Although there is not yet a clear consensus on whether OCTA or FA has an overall higher detection rate of microaneurysms, some studies suggest that OCTA may allow superior detection of diabetic microaneurysms by providing better imaging of the deep capillary plexus. OCTA also permits 3D on-FOS analysis to better differentiate retinal neovascularization from intraretinal microvascular abnormalities, a distinction that is difficult to determine on FA. Diabetic neovascularization tends to be superficial, at times even extending into the hyloid, whereas changes such as intraretinal microvascular abnormalities occur in the deeper retinal layers. Measuring the depth of vascular anomalies allows us to differentiate neovascularization of the disc from collateral vessels. Criteria such as FAZ area, vessel area density, and vessel perfusion density provide us with new quantifiable data indicative of disease severity. One consideration that must be taken into account 
when evaluating these factors is that although results may be consistent within each machine and protocol, they vary across machines. Furthermore, values such as vessel density appear also to vary with patient age and sex, emphasizing the need for a normative database. Limitations in the quality of OCTA scans, such as sensitivity to aberrant eye movements and the presence of artifacts, will continue to be improved with time. As OCTA technology is further developed and becomes more accurate and affordable, it is likely to replace FA as the gold standard in retinal vascular imaging for diseases such as diabetic retinopathy. The rapid, high-resolution, quantifiable imaging possible with OCTA provides practitioners with a sophisticated means of monitoring patients with diabetes for ischemia and microvascular changes. As normative databases are established for criteria such as FAZ area and vessel density, research will further guide clinical decision-making and ultimately establish guidelines for earlier identification of diabetic retinopathy changes and progression. If you've never heard of the International Congress of Scleral Contacts, ICSC, or you've attended but aren't aware of its origins, we'll give you the Cliff Notes version, along with a teaser on what's in store for this year's meeting. In January 2015, Dr. Nathan Schramm was looking for a way to connect with other optometrists who are passionate about scleral lenses. He created the Scleral Lens Practitioners Facebook group and was soon inundated with requests from colleagues looking to join the group. Like Dr. Schramm, Dr. Tom Arnold is a fellow of the Scleral Lens Education Society and is a scleral lens enthusiast. So Dr. Schramm enlisted his offer to filter through the applicants. Thanks to the efforts of these two, the Scleral Lens Practitioners Facebook group has grown to more than 5,000 members. Riding the wave of success and interest generated by the creation of the Facebook group, Dr. Schramm and Arnold partnered with Bryn Mawr Communications, BMC, the publisher of Modern Optometry and Collaborative Eye, and BMC's events team in 2015 to put together a conference dedicated solely to scleral lens technology. Thus, the ICSC was born and it has grown each year since its inception. Last year's meeting attracted nearly 200 attendees, and we hope to see yet another increase in attendees this year. This year, the ICSC is honored to have Dr. Melissa Barnett as co-chair. Dr. Barnett brings a wealth of both clinical and research experience in the specialty lens field. The ICSC is meant for both scleral lens experts and beginners, and is taught by some of the leading experts in the field. In fact, this year we are particularly excited to announce that Scurl Lens superstars Donald Ezekiel and Ken Pullum will deliver keynote lectures. Meeting these two in person is truly a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and one you don't want to miss. Additionally, many fellows of the Scurl Lens Education Society get a turn at the ICSC podium and a number of topics related to Scurl Lenses will be discussed, including drug delivery, contraindications to scleral lenses, building a specialty lens practice, and more. The meeting is interactive and each table is provided with a microphone for the Q&A portion that follows the podium talks. In the past, the ICSC was a one-day meeting, but this year it will take place over two days and will offer even more valuable content. 
Both days will feature a two-hour wet lab, and on Friday afternoon, we will continue to highlight the importance of ODMD relations with a session on the secret power of the ODMD collaboration. An added benefit this year is that the entire meeting will be translated live into Spanish. Attendees wishing to expand their knowledge and skills can attend hands-on workshops that will expose them to a variety of products and fitting philosophies. Participants will rotate through seven different workshops and have the opportunity to interact with vendors and other clinicians. The 2019 ICSC promises to be the best yet. Our first three meetings were held with enthusiastic support from practitioners around the world and 2019 will be no exception. Come join us in Fort Lauderdale this summer. We guarantee that you, your patients, and your practice will be happy you did. In the United States, the incidence of new ophthalmic herpes simplex virus is estimated at 11.8 per 100,000 person years. The final article featured in this episode of the Mod Pod is a primer on this common disease by Allison Bozong of Bascom Palmer Eye Institute. Herpes simplex virus, or HSV, belongs to a small subfamily of viruses, herpes viridae. HSV is a double-stranded DNA virus that has approximately 90% seropositivity in people over age 60 years in the United States. Once contracted, HSV exhibits retrograde movement from the end organ towards sensory ganglia, where it remains dormant or in a state of non-replication for variable periods of time. One aspect that makes HSV challenging to treat is its propensity to recur. The Hepatic Eye Disease Study Group found that recurrence rates of keratitis were approximately 32% over 18 months. Studies have shown varying recurrence rates, however, ranging between 9.6% and 20% at one year, 27% and 36% at five years, and approximately 63% at 20 years. When managing a patient with HSV keratitis, determining the level of tissue involvement is of paramount importance. Genetic differences in viral DNA may cause some HSV strains to generate more aggressive stromal disease, whereas other strains more commonly manifest with epithelial dendrites. Moreover, multiple HSV substrains have been found in the same host, signifying a broad spectrum of disease. This article reviews three forms of HSV keratitis and discusses long-term management. HSV keratitis affecting the corneal epithelium can be described as dendritic, geographic, or marginal. Dendritic ulcers form from epithelial vesicles that have coalesced. They appear as branching tree-like disruptions with swollen borders containing live virus. The elevated borders may stain with rose bengal, whereas the bed of the ulcer will stain with fluorescein. Once a dendrite widens to lose its branching appearance, it is called a geographic ulcer. These ulcers possess scallop edges, but demonstrate staining patterns similar to those of dendrites. Both dendritic and geographic ulcers may be associated with subjacent stromal haze in the footprint of the ulcerated area. Marginal ulcers are a clinically underrecognized manifestation of HSV. They present with a perilimbal epithelial defect, an underlying infiltrate, superficial neovascularization, and pronounced adjacent limbal injection. Staphylococcal-associated marginal infiltrates, on the other hand, start as an infiltrate with or without an overlying epithelial defect 
and form in locations where the eyelid juxtaposes the limbus. These infiltrates are associated with blepharitis. Epithelial HSV keratitis responds well to topical antiviral therapy, such as trifluridine, acyclovir, or gancyclovir. Oral antivirals may also be used as a primary therapy, especially when the cost of topical medications is prohibitive. Topical corticosteroids should be avoided in patients with primary epithelial keratitis because these drugs may exacerbate the disease course. Topical antibiotics are recommended when an epithelial defect is present to prevent bacterial co-infection. Stromal involvement in HSV may be primary or secondary. With primary involvement, it is thought that the virus migrates into stromal keratocyte, where it replicates and affects the cell's outward antigenicity, leading to a host inflammatory response. Viral antigens may also exist in the extracellular matrix and directly provoke an immune-mediated response. Secondary stromal involvement in HSV occurs when edema or inflammation is instigated by epithelial or endothelial infection. Primary stromal HSV is often referred to as interstitial keratitis. It accounts for approximately 20% to 48% of recurrent HSV keratitis. Clinically, primary stromal HSV presents with haze, edema, and deep fronds of stromal neovascularization. It lacks epithelial defects or keratic precipitates. During a flare, two processes must be addressed, the virus and the host immune response. Aggressive topical corticosteroids are necessary to manage the inflammation. These agents should be tapered over a period of at least 10 weeks. Although either topical or antivirals may be used to address the virus, the currently preferred practice is to use oral antivirals. Occasionally, primary stromal HSV is termed necrotizing stromal keratitis. This rare but severe form often mimics severe microbial ulcers and can result in corneal perforation. High-dose oral antivirals and topical corticosteroids are the mainstay of treatment. Unfortunately, even with timely and aggressive management, patients are often left with significant corneal scarring. Herpetic endotheliitis results in stromal edema from endothelial dysregulation, keratic precipitates, and anterior chamber cell. IOP may be elevated due to concurrent trabeculitis. Stromal infiltrates and neovascularization are notably absent. Early in the disease course, corneal swelling may be diffuse, but it is often worse centrally and may prevent adequate visualization of keratic precipitates and anterior chamber cell. HSV endotheliitis falls into three main classifications, discoform, diffuse, and linear. Differentiation depends on the distribution of keratic precipitates and stromal edema, although all three forms are treated in a similar manner. Typically, HSV endotheliitis responds well to oral antivirals and topical corticosteroids. Suspected cases of HSV-related anterior uveitis are managed similarly. When IOP is elevated, aqueous suppressants should be prescribed. Treating the ophthalmic complications of HSV can be challenging. Management depends on the level of corneal involvement. In the acute phase, the focus of treatment is to limit duration and prevent serious tissue damage. Once the acute phase has passed, the goal of treatment shifts to preventing recurrence and managing the sequelae of the disease, such as corneal scarring, neovascularization, and neurotrophic keratopathy. Prophylactic oral antivirals, which reduce recurrence rates by nearly 50%, 
should be considered for individuals with a history of recurrent HSV keratitis or keratoplasty. Those who have persistent low-grade stromal inflammation or neovascularization can benefit from prophylactic oral antivirals and low-dose topical corticosteroids to suppress their local immune reaction against viral antigens. Side effects such as elevated IOP and cataract development must be discussed with these patients and managed concurrently. Herpetic keratitis can lead to severe scarring. In developed nations, it is the most common infectious cause of corneal blindness, and the disease is a frequent indication for penetrating or deep anterior lamellar keratoplasty. Corneal neovascularization can be problematic in these patients because the intrastromal vessels increased immunogenicity of the graft, elevating the risk of repeat keratoplasty. Perhaps one of the most common and difficult sequelae to manage is neurotrophic keratitis. Hallmarks of this process are poor epithelial healing, a lack of corneal sensation, and reduced tear production. Neurotrophic corneas are therefore prone to epithelial erosions, ulceration, and ultimately perforation. Based on the degree of severity, treatment strategies vary. Conservative measures include frequent installation of preservative-free lubrication drops, placement of a bandage or scleral contact lens, and administration of autologous serum eye drops. More aggressive measures include partial tarsorophy or corneal transplantation in the event of perforation. Fortunately, a novel therapy for neurotrophic keratopathy became available in 2018 when the FDA approved the first drug specifically indicated for treating neurotrophic keratitis. Senegerman is a recombinant human growth factor. Other topical biologics are currently under investigation, and novel surgical techniques are being explored. In corneal neurotization, for example, a sensory nerve is harvested, attached to the supraorbital or supratrochlear nerve, and then inserted near the neurotrophic eye's limbus. All eye care specialists can expect to encounter patients with HSV keratitis. Astute clinical judgment can help practitioners to effectively manage both the acute and long-term sequelae of this disease. That's all we have for you this time. If you're enjoying the audio offerings of our articles, have general comments or suggestions for future content, let us know by emailing us at modernod at bmctoday.com. Thanks for listening.